My guest today, like me, is a Scot. Like me, he's a British-American. Unlike me, he's an atheist. And unlike me, he is the founding director of an educational technology company. My guest is also the recipient of an International Emmy Award, who has also written for the LA Times, the Sunday Telegraph, the London Financial Times, the New Republic, and the Boston Globe. But like me, he loves America, and so... I, like him, Neil Ferguson, for the entire hour. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's panic in America. Oh, 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 trouble in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Ladies and gentlemen, I had a a must list that when I started this program two and a half years ago, I gave to our great producer, Gina Gamboni, and near the top of the list was Neil Ferguson. And I'm delighted to say that today that desire, after a long wait, has been fulfilled or is being fulfilled currently. Uh, Neil Ferguson, you know him. He has a MA and a Doctor of Philosophy and is the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University and a Senior Faculty Fellow at the Belfar Center of Science and International Affairs at Harvard. He is also a visiting professor at Shisung University, if I'm not saying it incorrectly, in Beijing. And along the way, he has also taught at the London School of Economics, and uh, and of course he is also taught at Oxford. He is the author of 16 books, including The Pity of War, The House of Rothschild, Civilization, The West and the Rest, Kissinger, 1928 to 1968, The Idealist, which won the Council on Foreign Relations Arthur Ross Prize. Uh, he is also an award-winning filmmaker, uh, having won an international Emmy for his PBS series The Ascent of Money and is the founder and managing director of Green Mantle LLC, an advisory firm. His most recent book is entitled Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe. And we are most fortunate to have him here. His wife, Eon Hersey Ali, is a good friend of Watching America, so it's uh, all the more special to have uh, both sides of a wonderful partnership represented here on the show. So, Dr. Neil, welcome to Watching America. Thanks, Dr. Allen. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll, we'll dispense with the doctors and it'll just be Alan and Neil. Um, yes. I want to go right to, to the beginning of your book uh, and uh, very concisely and succinctly you say, never in our lifetime, it seems, has there been a greater uncertainty about the future and there again greater ignorance about the past. And moreover, you go on to say that um, the certainly the issue of COVID-19 had an impact on your, on your life on a regular basis. You wrote, my weekly newspaper column in the first half of 2020 became a kind of plague diary, though I never mentioned the fact that I was ill for most of February with a painful cough I could not seem to shake off. And to get through lectures, I resorted or relied rather, your words, uh, heavily on scotch. By the way, how, how, how do lectures go on scotch? on scotch is it, is it difficult or is it delightful well i was using it for purely medicinal purposes ah. if your throat is uh, is in agony it's difficult to project and and whiskey is really very very good for that uh, because of the anesthetic effect one one shouldn't overdo it though because uh, 
if drinking and driving is dangerous, drinking and lecturing is even more dangerous, <laughs> albeit to your reputation rather than your your life and limb. Well, I go on to quote you from the introduction of your book. You say, although my core competency is financial history, I have been keenly interested in the role of disease in history ever since studying the Hamburg cholera epidemic of 1892. And then you go on to speak of the influence of Richard Evans' work, who essentially introduced you to the idea of of mortality caused by deadly pathogen being partly a reflection of the social and political order of its attacks. Well, why don't we begin there, if that's all right with you. Um, Your appraisal of what is currently happening has happened, and where do you think we might be going? And I hasten to add to the audience that it's not just strictly a book about COVID-19, far from it, uh, as the title implies, Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe. Well, Alan, the the idea of this book was, was in fact, in my mind, before the the pandemic began. I had been thinking about, in a funny kind of way, science fiction as a history of the future. And I'd, I'd spent a lot of 2019 uh, catching up on my science fiction reading because I'd really neglected the genre for about 40 years. And the, the insight was that it's hard to write the history of the future by definition, but that's really what science fiction authors try to do. They try to imagine future states and imagine how technology might might change the world. And so when the pandemic began, I'd been sensitized, I think, by reading science fiction to the, the early stages of the disaster, that little email that I think I got on January the 3rd from a friend saying something funny about this pneumonia in Wuhan. And, and for me, that was just the sort of red flag because in science fiction, the disastrous pandemics always begin with some little some little news flash that that uh, that seems inconsequential unless you're aware of the potential for a new pathogen to sweep the world. So from being a history of the future and, and of future disasters, the book morphed into a, a history of disasters generally. And the thesis that the book advances is that there's no such distinction as the distinction between natural and man-made catastrophes. They're actually, in fact, uh, very similar things, and it's in many ways a false dichotomy. Uh, That's to say that although a new coronavirus is at some level a natural phenomenon, let's assume it wasn't engineered, but it, it probably did leak from a laboratory and there was a cover-up by the Chinese Communist Party for weeks. And that's really why there was a pandemic, because if they'd come clean early on about what was happening in Wuhan, it would never have spread as far as it as it did. So in many ways, this was a man-made disaster. And also the fact that some countries did much, much worse than others, like the USA has had a pretty torrid experience with very high levels of mortality in Norway and uh, and South Korea and Taiwan have had, had, had hardly any excess mortality. So that's not for biological reasons. It's basically the same. It's the same virus, but the responses of different countries have been very, very widely divergent. So hence the subtitle, The Politics of Catastrophe. Every disaster at some level is, is politically constructed. Even a volcanic eruption is only a disaster if you've decided to build a great city right at the foot of the volcano. So you mentioned in your book that you were first introduced to the word doom as a boy in East Africa, where it was, of all things, a brand name for a popular insecticide spray. 
it does seem given to human nature that some of us on this planet, either consciously or unconsciously, are, are almost infatuated with the idea of disaster. We go and see movies of of calamity and the world coming supposedly to an end. So there is uh, an eschatology which goes beyond the, the realm of religious belief uh, that seems to be enchantment with it in fiction and cinema. Um, what do you make of the difference in personality types and even in national states of, of interpreting bad things that occur as either being exciting, uh, welcomed, uh, certainly the media loves it because it's something to report on, versus it coming home and uh, having, for instance, a Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans uh, or the devastation that we saw in Japan in, in 2011? I think we're fascinated by the idea of the end of the world. And that that is something that is deeply embedded in our our collective psyche. It's partly religion, Christianity and Islam and Buddhism actually envisage very cataclysmic ends to history. And the book of Revelation is is a good example of this. But even in a more post-religious modern era, we're drawn to movies and, and books, as you said, in which the world ends in some spectacular way. And I think this is just an enduringly fascinating subject. And it carries over into a lot of the debates that go on today on climate change, for example, when when uh, I think it was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said two years ago, the world will end in 12 years if we don't act. Uh, I, I thought to myself, well, there's the old millenarian spirit, the end of the world is is drawing nigh, repent. And uh, and, and that, that drives a lot of the more radical environmental uh, discourse. Greta Thunberg goes in for this kind of very apocalyptic language. In truth, it's not the end of the world we really have to worry about. At least that will come, but a long, long way in the future, unless we decide to have a nuclear war. More likely, we just have to deal with disasters. And and these don't happen at any predictable frequency. We never quite know when the next big earthquake is going to strike California. We have no real clue about when the next pandemic will be. We don't know when World War III will break out, if it will break out. Therefore, our real challenge as a society is to deal with unpredictable, uh, apparently random disasters and try to deal with them better than uh, than our ancestors did. And I think that it's the strange thing is that we can spend so much time fascinating ourselves with the idea of the end of the world, but we're quite incompetent when it comes to dealing with with a, a, a medium-sized disaster. I mean, COVID-19 is not one of history's big disasters. I don't want to sound callous, but at this point, the death toll is 0.06% of the world's population. That is uh, a rounding error by comparison with the Black Death of the 1340s. But what's striking to me is that although we know vastly more about the natural world, about viruses, about disease than the medieval people of the 1340s, we don't seem to have got that much better at dealing with the plague. We still seem to have a, a very high body count. And even with vaccines, we're still a long way from the end of this pandemic. So one of the questions I ask in Doom is, why are we not better at this? Because we know so much more about the nature of disaster than our ancestors did. There is a whole issue of credibility uh, by government officials and, and social um, personalities who appear throughout media. I remember as a boy being told in 1970 that uh, there were only seven years left before the, the rainforest in Brazil would be destroyed and there'd be this humongous 
uh, ozone clearing and we'd all be radiated, uh, essentially. 1977 came about and I noticed with glee that uh, I was still here and so was the world. 1981, same thing, 1988. And by 1995, I, I stopped taking this seriously. Uh, not to say that there isn't uh, obviously changes in the weather because there is. But um, there, there are those who just seem to be cheerleaders of of such uh, negativity and uh, almost invariable forecasting of disaster that after a while you just have to shrug it off your shoulders and say, yeah, heard that, mm-hmm, been there before. Um, is there a, a, an antidote to being able to discern what's legitimate and what isn't for the layperson? Well, it's it's difficult because the science, if, if science is the right word of modelling a threat like climate change is is not by any means straightforward. The Intergovernmental Panel, panel on Climate Change has attempted uh, to to try to model the the likely effects of of rising average temperatures. And if one looks at its most recent report, it's a it's a very impressive effort to simulate uh, the future climate. And in reality, there is enormous uncertainty about about all of this because the, the world's climate is a complex system. The truth is we don't quite know what the effects of rising temperatures will be because they will impact uh, different things in, in different ways. Think only of the, the Gulf Stream in the Atlantic Ocean. Nobody quite knows at what point that might uh, radically change. So there's enormous uncertainty about future scenarios. The most one can really say with confidence is that it it's probably pretty dangerous for us to allow uh, temperatures to keep rising as they have been. And that's that's going to happen on our present path. So the layman doesn't need, I think, to believe that the world is going to end in 12 years, because that's about as plausible as as what you were told in 1970. Uh, And it's as plausible as the claims that were made in the 1960s that overpopulation was going to cause uh, catastrophic famines. That that didn't happen because of the Green Revolution. One has to, I think, avoid very specific predictions, because we just can't have that much certainty. But we can, I think, say to ourselves, there's some decent probability that higher temperatures will make big chunks of the world much less habitable, that that will have the adverse consequence of of mass migration. And we should try to avoid that. We, We should be prepared to pay some kind of insurance premium against a very bad outcome, just as you and I pay insurance premiums against uh, fire and, and in my case, earthquake, just as it would have been smart to have had a better pandemic preparedness plan in place at the end of, of 2019. So I just think about this as kind of insurance. And then the question becomes, well, what's an appropriate premium? How much should we be prepared to pay? And how should we pay it? Right now, the, the course that we are going down is to pay a premium by raising the price of carbon, i.e. to make it more expensive to use fossil fuels in an attempt to incentivize people to switch to so-called renewables. That's the strategy of the European New Deal and what I think uh, the Democrats are seeking to do in the United States. The problems are twofold. One, if that's your strategy, the insurance premium gets paid in the form of higher energy prices for consumers uh, and indeed for, for industry. And I think the political resistance to that has uh, only just begun to form. The second bigger problem is that unless you can get China and India, it should be said, 
to go along with your strategy, it's actually not going to achieve very much because right now, uh, China's been responsible for about two thirds of the increase in carbon dioxide emissions since Greta Thunberg was born in 2003, and 93% of the increase in coal consumption. And although the Chinese say they're going to become uh, green and carbon neutral, it's not for some time. And I'm not sure I really believe their, their pledges. So that, that seems to me the bigger problem. We, we can do all kinds of things to reduce our consumption of, of uh, fossil fuels. But if the Chinese don't, then the planet will continue to warm, more or less regardless of what we do. Have you in any way been verbally castigated for um, expressing this opinion? Because there is a, a definite wave of intolerance uh, by even merely suggesting that we might want to moderate our fervor for trying to eliminate all potential perils. I, I don't know. I think it's interesting that, if anything, the arguments that, say, Bjorn Lomberg has been making have got harder to castigate. The trouble about it is that if you look at what happened last year, we can see very clearly what the consequences are of a drastic reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, because we ran the experiment, not, not because of anything that Greta Thunberg said, but because of COVID. So in the wake of the outbreak of the pandemic, first in China, then in Europe, and then North America, we basically shut down the economy as a result of lockdown measures. And, and there were drastic reductions in greenhouse gas emissions in the early part of last year. Those were, of course, attended by massive increases in unemployment and huge economic and social dislocation. That revealed that it is, it's easy to call for, as Greta Thunberg did at Davos in January of 2020, an immediate end to carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions, it's easy to say that, but if you actually do it, you cause huge economic uh, disruption. So I think it's actually interesting to see that the debate, I think, has become more realistic. Ahead of the, of the COP26 conference that is happening in my native Glasgow next month, I've been involved in quite a lot of discussions. And I've been I've been struck by the fact that, for example, the point I just made to you about China is no longer regarded as a kind of blasphemous thing to say. Even John Kerry, who's spearheading the Biden administration's strategy on, on climate, is calling China out. So I don't think what I've said is, is quite as heretical as it, as it might have been a few years ago. They're getting at least a little more realistic in the kind of green team. The end point of all these issues of fear and deep concern is death. And we don't like death. And uh, you, you, you've demonstrated that by alluding actually to Monty Python's the, the Meaning of Life, where the Grim Reaper comes to pay a visit. As a matter of fact, let me play that clip right now. Yes? I am the Grim Reaper. I am death. Yes, well, the thing is, we've got some people from America for dinner tonight. Who is it, darling? It's a Mr. Death or something. He's come about the reaping. Well, do get Mr. Death a drink, darling. Yes. Mr. Death is a reaper. We were just talking about some of the awful problems facing the third... I am death. Well, that's cast rather a gloom over the evening, hasn't it? Don't see it that way, Jeff. Let me tell you what I think we're dealing with here. A potentially positive learning experience that can enhance... You're dead now. Dead? Dead. All of us. All of you. 
Now look here. You barge in here quite uninvited, break glasses, and then announce quite casually that we're all dead. Well, I would remind you that you're a guest in this house. Oh, oh, quiet. Can I ask you a question? What? How can we all have died at the same time? The salmon moose. Darling, you didn't use canned salmon, did you? I'm most dreadfully embarrassed. We giggle and we laugh, but uh, we do all manner of things, particularly uh, in the United States, to, to kid ourselves that death is not death. We take uh, corpses of loved ones and we slap makeup on them to make them look alive. In fact, when it's obvious that they're not alive, we talk about life insurance when the truth is it's really death insurance, but we, we, we were uncomfortable with that. One of the things yes. I want to get to that you address in the book, and uh, I briefly alluded to it, but I, I, I didn't really give it sufficient attention, is you talk about the fact that you're very interested in why some societies and states respond to catastrophe so much better than others. Um, why do some fall apart? Why do most hold together? And why do a few emerge even stronger? You ask the question, why does politics sometimes cause catastrophe? And uh, you said these are the central questions that are posed by your book, Doom. And what I want to do is, first of all, address astonishment, which I, I think was pretty much held the world over with uh, with Japan. If we look at what happened again in 2011 with the Tohoku um, hurricane, and well, not hurricane actually, but uh, earthquake and then tsunami, and then a nuclear disaster, I think we all, to some degree, if I may speak for the world, um, I think we all looked on with, uh, with amazement with how self-contained, orderly, stoic, um, the Japanese were in that regard. Now, I don't expect you to be a, a, a sage on the disposition of all nationalities and what have you, but but what do you make of some nations, as you've indicated, being able to handle catastrophe well and without casting dispersions, others perhaps not as effectively? It's interesting that Japan is a, a country that is uh, very poorly located from a geological vantage point. Mm. It's it's highly vulnerable to, to earthquakes and tsunamis. Uh, and, and indeed, uh, that has been a, a recurrent problem in, in Japanese history. It's not like Britain, which is a, a, a kind of collection of islands at the other end of Eurasia, but, but there are no fault lines uh, near the United Kingdom. And so earthquakes are just not uh, one of the things that, that the British people have to worry about. If you are susceptible to earthquakes, you also can uh, fall victim to terrible fires that, that happened in 1923, uh, just as it happened uh, a decade earlier in San Francisco. So, so Japan has had more than its its fair share of disasters because of its location. It also had a very disastrous mid-20th century because of, uh, of World War II. The Japanese aggression that began in 1931 in, in Manchuria ultimately led Japan uh, down a disastrous path culminating in the dropping of atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we, I think, who uh, live in the United States don't easily visualize what Japan was like at the end of World War II, because the United States was quite unscathed uh, by World War II. And even Britain got off lightly by comparison with Japan. Mm -hmm. So one way of understanding Japan as a, as a society is that it has been through uh, a tremendous amount of disaster, natural and man-made. And as I said, that, that's not a wholly, wholly helpful distinction. And as a result, I think Japan's culture has evolved in a number of very distinctive ways. 
Another interesting thing about Japan, which is relevant here, is that Japan probably had the highest density of population earliest of any society in history because Japan had very, very high population, rather like the whole of East Asia in the period we call medieval, and very large cities. Uh, and as a result, the Japanese, like uh, people on the eastern seaboard of China, had pretty early and unpleasant encounters with infectious diseases. So what you get uh, in Japan is the evolution of a lot of social mores that that turn out to be really quite smart in any pandemic. You'll notice that the Japanese, when you visit, don't shake your hand or much less hug you, they bow. Bowing is the most hygienic way of, of greeting another human being. We should all take it up. Uh, as I navigate late pandemic social life in Europe and, and North America, I'm struck by the awkwardness. It's never quite clear when you meet somebody if they're going to bump your elbow, bump your fist, shake your hand, or give you a hug. <laughs> uh, it's And it's actually socially maddening because yes, you, you yeah. really don't know from one encounter to the next. In Japan, you bow. And one reason the Japanese have had much lower case numbers, hospitalization rates, and, and deaths from COVID is, is precisely that they don't go around um, hugging and, and, and holding hands. So Japan is a very interesting society because of its particularly searing history of, uh, of pandemics, of earthquakes, uh, and, and of wars. I, I think the other thing that's really surprising about Japan is that it's the most elderly society in the world with, with uh, this remarkable combination of very long life expectancy and really small family size. You'd have expected if if I told you in January 2020 about a novel coronavirus that disproportionately kills elderly people, Japan to have been very badly affected by COVID. But in fact, the US experience has been roughly 20 to 30 times worse than the Japanese experience. We we have a lot to learn from from Japan, which is which is why I, I try to go there often and and think a lot about its history. I'm interested historically about the rebounding of various nations after they've endured catastrophe. In a case like Pompeii, where you have, you know, Mount Vesuvius erupts and you have people suffocating in, in volcanic ash, is there a, a residual awakening that occurs with the next generation or do, by the time you get to the third generation, do you have these matters put to the side and out of people's consciousness and, oh, well, life goes on, I have a business? Well, if you ever visit uh, Pompeii, I've been there. Yes, you'll know that they they didn't rebuild, um, nor nor Herculaneum, which is in mm. many ways even more Better. impressive as a site. Yes. Um, on the other hand, uh, other settlements were were rebuilt, and it's not as if people entirely vacated uh, the area around Vesuvius. And Vesuvius had subsequent inter er er eruptions uh, causing havoc, even although they weren't as big as as, as the famous Roman eruption. I mean, I, I think the, the lesson I learned from, from studying the case of, of Vesuvius is that as, as human beings, we are strongly inclined to rebuild in the wake of disaster and, and not to sort of write places off uh, which, which is why there are actually a surprising number of cities around the world in quite close proximity to volcanoes as well as to fault lines. Uh, so human beings have an ability to uh, not necessarily forget a disaster, but live with the possibility of its happening again. 
I'd like to switch to a 21st century example of um, a a nation enduring far more than it really should, and that's Haiti. Uh, Mm. What do you make of a nation like that? Which, And this seems to me to be a synthesis of the very thing that your book is talking about. And for the listener, let me remind you, the book is Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe, written by Neil Ferguson, who I'm so delighted to have as my guest on Watching America. Uh, So you have this uh, perpetual instability politically, uh, certainly with fault lines, earthquakes, famine. It's just endless. Uh, What can we learn from afar from observing this? Um, What is the take home? That we can say, looking at, for instance, a nation like native, uh, Haiti rather, versus its its sister state, uh, the Dominican Republic, on the same strip of land, practically, on the same island. I yeah, I have yeah. been to the Dominican Republic. I have not been to Haiti. I should say, I think the answer, Alan, is that uh, uh, Haiti's problem is not so much its vulnerability to disasters, because the Dominican Republic is pretty much as vulnerable. Uh, the problem is. Its political institutions and economic institutions have created a terrible poverty trap. If you are trapped at the lowest end of uh, of global per capita income rankings, then it's very hard to be resilient. Uh, whether it's an earthquake or, or or a hurricane, your 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 population is already very close to the edge of subsistence, and therefore, a, a disaster that would would really do relatively little harm in the Dominican Republic, does a lot of harm in Haiti. Uh, and I, I think that that brings us to the, 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 the importance of the politics of catastrophe, that ultimately Haiti's ghastly poverty is more a function of, of its political history than anything else, that, that really ever since the original uh, revolution against uh, French rule in which uh, modern Haiti was born, that the, the country has been characterized by high levels of, of, of violence, political instability, chronic corruption, and the consequences, the grinding poverty that one, one sees there. I, I think I, I made this kind of argument in a book called Civilization nearly 10 years ago, to an extent that we still underestimate. It's really institutions and particularly political institutions that, that determine outcomes. And Haiti is a good example of this, but you could say the same about West Germany, East Germany back in the Cold War or North Korea, South Korea today. It can't really be the case that geography uh, determines outcomes because geographically, in each case, it's the same place. It's just that if you give one half of Korea totalitarianism and the other democracy and capitalism, you get totally different outcomes. Same story with the two Germanys uh, before 1989. And and you look at the island on which Haiti and the Dominican Republic sit side by side. And again, you see how big a difference it makes if if the institutions create bad incentives. And I mean, I would go further and say, if you you kind of take a look at the, the Caribbean region as a whole, the amazing differences that you see between Florida and Cuba. Mm. I mean, mm. they're basically in the same neighborhood yes. and they have the same problem with hurricanes, but the outcomes because of the different political orders are just drastically different. For me, that's a hugely encouraging thing. I know it seems odd to take solace from the history of Haiti, but what this tells us is that most historical outcomes have to do with things that we have some control over. It's not 
that that geography is destiny or demography is destiny or or even that culture is destiny. Ultimately, it matters a lot what institutions are in place. And if you changed, if you could somehow change Haiti's political institutions uh, and get it out of this terrible cycle of violence and corruption, then the outcomes would be very different. I mean, my favorite example of this is is my own native land. If you had gone to Scotland in the 17th mm. century, you'd have been in a kind of uh, European version of Afghanistan. Right. Uh, you as an Englishman will appreciate this. Well, I'm a Scot too. Boring, uh, well, <laughs> my well, father was in, from English Banff. So. Well, your, 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 your father will perhaps agree with me that yes. in Scotland in the 17th century, you had in the north extraordinarily violent warring tribes called clans. And in the southern part, uh, Taliban-like uh, Calvinist theologians mm. who were all for uh, putting witches to death. Very, very Afghanistan. And yet, by the end of the 18th century, Scotland's a cradle of the Enlightenment and probably mm. the most dynamic economy in the world. So mm. even when you look at a basket case like Haiti or Somalia, where my wife comes from, history is telling you that there's hope, that, th- that these places aren't doomed to be that way forever. Well, let's jump smack dab right into the middle of uh, chapter six, where you address political incompetence. And you speak uh, specifically of the psychology of political incompetence. What do you mean by that? How does it manifest itself? And what do you think are, are the key elements that we need to consider? Just a reminder before you explain, I need to tell everybody that we're speaking with Neil Ferguson, uh, a long-awaited guest on my part, someone I've desired to have right from the get-go on the show. I'm so happy to have him here today. His latest book is entitled The Doom of Politics, uh, excuse me, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. And we're looking at um, the issue of the psychology of political incompetence. Well, the, the doom of politics is a quite nice phrase, actually, Alan. I, I was thinking as, as you were talking that, that a big part of what I wanted to try and, and do in this book was to show that many of the things that, that we associate with disaster are not purely natural, that they they often are a result of uh, poor political leadership. Uh, and, and I don't just mean by that the president, I'm talking about the way in which the political system works. Now, I came across a wonderful book by a man named Norman Dixon many years ago called The Psychology of Military Incompetence, which talks about why it is that uh, uh, throughout history, there are certain sort of conspicuous and recurrent failings of military leadership. Uh, you know, think of the general who orders his men to mount a frontal assault of heavily defended positions and sustains massive casualties. That That's the psychology of, of military in, incompetence. But the psychology of political incompetence is kind of similar, uh, though it, it, it may lead to, to high death tolls by different routes. What, what I'm talking about is the way in which leaders are selected, but also bureaucracies function uh, so that in a disaster like the uh, pandemic, we get very suboptimal responses. That The right response to a new coronavirus back in January last year was to do what the Taiwanese did or the South Koreans, which was very quickly to create tests to try to find out who had the virus and then to use contact tracing to find out who they'd been in contact with and then to quarantine and isolate infected people. And this worked really well in Taiwan last year. 12 people, 12 in total, died of COVID. And Taiwan is right next to China where all this began. Mm. What happened in most Western democracies was completely different. 
there was a good deal of dithering around, a lot of people saying silly things like it'll be no worse than the seasonal flu, uh, and then no real serious attempt to build out testing capacity. Think of how hard it was to get a COVID test in the first half of last year in the United States. Mm. No attempt at contact tracing. And then in the middle of March, by which time the virus was just about everywhere, panic and very, very drastic measures called lockdowns, which had all kinds of unintended adverse consequences. I'd say what you see in the response to COVID is a sort of classic illustration of what the psychology of political incompetence looks like. At the top, decisions were made, as far as I could see, in a somewhat haphazard way, whether you're talking about Washington or London. But more importantly, in the public health bureaucracy, you could see terrible malfunctions happening, Mm. for example, at the Centers for Disease Control, CDC. Mm -hmm. Instead of making lots of testing available, the CDC actually prevented other people, other agencies, private agencies from making tests, and then produced a test of their own, which didn't work. And that was a fantastic example of the psychology of political incompetence. The CDC wanted to have central control over testing and then actually couldn't deliver a test that worked. Uh, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. There's a general, um, what I would call a, a base uh, frustration that we all encounter. Um, as you might imagine, I, I quite frequently fly back across the pond to England and everything was going rather swimmingly well without too much uh, to do until last August. Uh, and I flew back for an engagement. Obviously, I'd had my uh, shots done uh, with the Pfizer shots, the both of them. Uh, but when I had to leave the United States to to appease the British, I had to take a test before leaving within 48 hours to prove that I was not um, uh, positive for uh, COVID-19. Then when I arrived at the border uh, control in Britain, um, they didn't like the documentation. And then I was told that I had to, uh, within two days, get another uh, testing done in Britain, which incidentally cost £200 for the kit. Then I was told that I also had to take another test uh, uh, on day eight, even though I wasn't going to be in the UK for day eight. I still had to pay for it. That was another £200. So then I had uh, at least the initial certificate saying that I was cleared and did did not have, in fact, uh, COVID-19 or any bearing signs of it. Then I returned to the United States, and then I went through another hassle uh, in Washington, D.C. upon arrival here. My point is not, oh, you know, woe is me, Alan Campbell, but just the general frustration of having, for instance, nations that can't agree amongst themselves, and in this case, uh, we're told the greatest allies, uh, about what they're going to accept uh, and find legitimate uh, in, in each other when, when they hold each other's, if you will, clarification and documentation suspect. It's incredibly maddening to go through that. And I'm sure you go through that a lot more with your extensive travel. But I have to say that one of the the things that is fascinating about the political incompetence story is the way bureaucracy, which I think has been one of the reasons we've done badly in most Western countries in dealing with the pandemic, continues to proliferate because of the pandemic. You have given a pretty good illustration of how modern travel works. And I can assure you it's not exclusive to going... US, UK and back, any trip to Europe uh, Mm. is extraordinarily complicated because each country has a different uh, set of rules uh, and they change on a weekly basis. Yes, yes. And so when you travel, you have to have a sheaf of pieces of paper with test results, attestations in Europe, passenger locator forms. Mm. And 
the the complexity of any trip is just 10 times what it used to be. If 9-11 produced a bureaucracy of security to which we've grown accustomed, standing in line, having people look at our laptops uh, in x-ray machines, uh, I can assure you COVID is going to produce an equally long-lasting pandemic uh, set of rituals and uh, get used to it, because I'd be really surprised if these things get scrapped, even after excess mortality has come right down and, and the pandemic is is more endemic than 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 pandemic. So I'm I'm slightly depressed at the prospect because my life certainly used to revolve around a good deal of travel, not least across the Atlantic to see my my older children and my mother. And it's become maddeningly more difficult. Yes. I wouldn't mind if these restrictions had some meaningful purpose to them. Yes. Uh, but they really don't. And I'll give you an illustration. Uh, because uh, it affected my wife only today. Uh, supposedly going to a country I won't I won't name uh, for uh, security reasons. Uh, a new uh, rule was introduced by that country so that my wife was told she couldn't any longer come to that country uh, other than via another country uh, because uh, their new rule. Uh, excluded people coming directly from the United States, but it wouldn't exclude the same person if she came via a transit country. Now, right? Yes, this is, this is insane because it doesn't achieve anything. I mean, if there were somebody who who somehow or other, despite vaccination, had uh, had 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 the the virus, what possible difference would it make if they? If they stopped over in a, it's, in it's a third country, it's quite arbitrary because um, no, it's mad. It, 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 I, mean, I, I have friends from I, I won't say which country, but they they can't come directly into the United States without a major hassle. However, if they fly into Mexico and then exactly. take a puddle jumper into Texas, yeah. they're fine, yeah. which yeah. makes so, no, no so sense this whatsoever. Is, this is madness because it doesn't actually. It probably on balance makes matters worse because if you were contagious, you'd have made a stopover in another place, uh, but but. I'll give you another example of, of the psychology of bureaucratic incompetence. The, the rule in the uh, Stanford swimming pool uh, that I'm glad to say has finally been scrapped, which created a buffer lane, an unusable lane in the pool, an outdoor <laughs> pool, mind you, between the kids' yeah. lane and the adult lanes. And my nine-year-old son justifiably took exception. The water molecules don't don't mix, Neil. Well, you know, the virus doesn't swim apparently <laughs> laterally. It only swims in, in lengths or laps, as they call them here. So this kind of lunacy is very, yes, very yeah. widespread. And so one wonders, you know, what is it? Just pretends to make people think, we care, our corporation cares, versus the, uh, the, the the non-necessity of these silly actions. A, a really large number of people in the world, Alan, are paid to devise preposterous regulations. And what's very clear is that the ones doing the COVID regulations know practically nothing about A, the disease, or B, public health more broadly. And so you, you get this proliferation of regulations designed by people who have no idea what they're doing, and it's just theatre uh, because uh, of the safety cult. Now, we, we we live at a time when safety is the highest uh, goal, uh, perhaps second only to diversity. And if you make safety the, the, the be-all and end-all, then you have to keep signalling to customers that you're making them safe. But in reality, what you're, you're doing is, is quite the opposite. You're, you're failing actually to do anything that remotely reduces the spread of a virus, and you're making life a good deal more inconvenient 
so I, I think this is what I'm getting at in Doom, that we have, relative to, say, 70 years ago, evolved a psychology and bureaucracy that is extraordinarily counterproductive in the end. It produces enormous numbers of regulations that really don't fulfill their intended purpose, and it tends to do it too late. So they're the wrong rules, and they're introduced far too late to make any difference. And I think this has happened again and again. I think we had really mostly silly rules uh, in the wake of 9-11. I think we had a set of very silly rules after the financial crisis. The Dodd-Frank Act, which was introduced after the financial crisis, does not make the financial system more stable than it was before. Mm. Uh, And that will at some point be revealed when the next financial crisis comes. And here we are again, going through this strange theatre of of safety-enhancing measures that, that just generate yet more bureaucracy and don't work. You indicated uh, that you didn't think that these matters were going to go away, at least not completely. Why is that? Who benefits? Inertia is enormous in a bureaucratic system. Uh, you you continue to do things without really asking if they're if they're serving a purpose. It, it seems to me that rituals like taking your laptop out of your briefcase and putting it in a separate bin just become uh, habitual. Mm. And nobody really asks the question, is this achieving anything? In the same way, I'm sure we will be filling out attestation forms uh, when we take our kids to school, when we get on planes, long after the pandemic has has become uh, endemic uh, and, and really has reverted to being just one of those diseases that we deal with, like influenza. And I think it's inertia. I mean, in the end, people are paid to generate regulations in in most Western societies. They are not paid to, to remove them. And if you just look at the, the Federal Register, which is the great uh, encyclopedia of regulations uh, at, at the federal level, there's only been one presidency during which it's shrunk in size, and that was Ronald Reagan's. The mm. Federal Register has grown in every in every other presidency. Uh, it grew enormously uh, during the Obama presidency, and I've no doubt it's growing enormously under Joe Biden. Uh, and this is one of the curious pathologies of modernity. I, I wrote about this in a book called The Great Degeneration. We have this uh, bureaucracy that is an end in itself and has imperatives to generate more paperwork in order to justify its own existence. This is an old and familiar problem that goes back to Parkinson's law and even to Franz Kafka. And we haven't yet worked out how to, how to deal with this. The ordinary people know this is a problem. They encounter it and find it frustrating all the time. They can't believe the complexity of every encounter that they have with the federal government, but they don't really have a way of, of tackling the problem. Much of what propelled people to vote for Donald Trump was this inchoate sense that the swamp needed to be drained, that the whole process had become dysfunctional, but but he himself was too flawed an instrument to bring about the kind of change that people clearly crave. So I think we've reached this impasse. Ordinary people know that the bureaucratic state is dysfunctional and they encounter its its pathologies on a daily basis, but they have no clue what to do about it. Um, there is this, uh, this this concept again of people, you know, walking around, the end is near. We've seen that proverbial cartoon endlessly decade after decade, uh, I think even through a couple of centuries. There is this uh, mindset where people are looking forward to the end, at least some persons. And we, we have examples of that with, you know, Heaven's Gate, the religious group where 39 members uh, got together of, of this, really, this cult and decided in San Diego they were going to die uh, to kind of become one with the comet Hale-Bob. 
Um, and so that happened in 1997. In 1961, uh, the comedy group, British comedy group, known as Beyond the Fringe, which had in its cast Jonathan Miller and Alan Bennett and Pete, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, well-known to American audiences, uh, had a little uh, little skit where Peter Cook plays brother Ennin, uh, who has led his followers to a mountain to await the apocalypse. And uh, I'll just let it play and then we'll come back just after this. Here we go. How will it be, this end of which you have spoken, Brother Emery? Aye, how will it be? Well, it will be as twere a mighty rending in the sky, you see, and the mountains will sink and the valleys will rise, and great shall be the tumult thereof, I should think. When? 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 Oh, when? In about 30 seconds' time. Suppose we'd better compose ourselves. Yes, prepare for the end of the world. <laughs> Five, four, three... Two, one, zero. Now is the end. Here is the world. <laughs> well, it's not quite the conflagration we'd been banking on. <laughs> Never mind, lads. Same disappointment that the, the, the finality has not arrived. Um, do you make in this current age of instability, which I, I guess I suppose one could argue there's always been instability, that there are some who are perhaps uh, are disappointed that things aren't worse? Well, the great thing about the Beyond the Fringe sketch is that it captures that particular group of people who are always predicting the end of the world. And even if they're not literally sitting on a on a hilltop wait, waiting for for the apocalypse, there is a lot of doom mongering out there, uh, and and I could find a Cassandra uh, on almost any given topic quite easily. People who predict the end of the world because artificial intelligence runs a mock. People who predict the end of the world because uh, there will be uh, uh, a uh, massive cyber attack or nuclear war. This is a this is a very popular activity, and and I think it's. It's almost uh, a, a consequence of that uh, that obsession with the apocalypse that we find in the in the world's major religions. Um, the, the prophet of doom is a familiar figure. You know, there, Alan, there are the people whose job it is to predict a financial crisis every year, and every now and again they get one, and then they are for a time lauded for their prescience. <laughs> one of the messages of doom yeah. is you can't predict the next disaster, much yes. less the end of the world, yes. because they're inherently unpredictable. And so when you hear people saying with great confidence, the end of the world is 12 years away, just turn away because they can't possibly know that. And uh, it's much more likely that you'll be contending with some medium-sized disaster like a pandemic, a wildfire, an earthquake, a war, than the end of the world. Nobody can predict the next disaster. You probably don't get the disaster you're expecting, and the big lesson for me of writing this book was, was actually a, a line from Catch-22. And it's not in the book, but it's in the 1970 movie that you may have seen. Yes, dr- directed by goes, Mike Nichols. A great movie, much better than the more recent adaptation. And the mm. line, which was clearly the work of a screenwriter, is just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't out to get you. Yeah. And I think that sums it up. Yeah. They really the disasters are out to get you and and they will come at you and there's not going to be a warning and you won't know which one is coming next. So the right state of mind is just a sort of general paranoia 
not that kind of bureaucratic mindset that we've been talking about. So yeah, I think the way to deal with the fact that the world is one disaster after another is just to be generally paranoid and react quickly when you feel that tremor that we talked about in California, or you read about that new virus in Wuhan, because it's rapid reaction that that is the key, not the power of prophecy. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Neil Ferguson, for being a part of Watching America. And uh, I delight, I'm sure many of our listeners delight in knowing that you are part of now the fabric that makes America, America. Thank you for your insights. Uh, a wonderful book. So deep. And, and ladies and gentlemen, I have to tell you that this, this book is uh, held in such high value by the New York Times Book Review, The Guardian, The Financial Times, and so it goes. Uh, too many uh, verbal accolades to even uh, reference at this point. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful tome. Doom, the politics of catastrophe. And I want to hasten to add that it's not just about uh, the eschaton. It's not just about COVID-19. It's about so much more. And it's multidimensional and a delight to read and probably one of the most thoroughly researched books on a scholarly level that you could encounter. And so I'm very grateful to uh, be able to recommend it to all of my listeners. It's nice to have a, a, a kind of conversation like that and go in some new directions. I've, I've done a lot of talking about this book over the last ooh, four months um, and uh, actually nearly five months now. So um, it's refreshing to get asked some some new questions and and also to have Monty Python and Peter Cook in the mix where they belong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not enough has been made of those passages and I'm glad you picked up on them. Yeah, I thought, well, it just brings a bit of spice and I was so glad for your yeah. own references when I read the book. I thought, oh, this is lovely. This is great. No, no. The fact that Brits can laugh at death, it's one of our, it's one of our <laughs> distinctive qualities. Take care. God bless. Thank you so much. And, and say hello to your wife for me. Thank you. I will do. Bye-bye. Cheers. And thanks to Gina. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm Watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.